Hello and welcome to Head on History. I am your host Ali A. Alomi. Welcome for a welcome to another episode of season four, the Empires of Faith, which is an exploration of the ancient world through an intersection of empire and religion. I hope that you're enjoying the podcast so far. Uh, if you are, do let me know. You can leave a review on iTunes that'll help to kind of increase the visibility of the podcast. I love receiving those reviews. I'll read a few of those out um, on air as well. You can also hit me up uh, on social media. Uh, A couple people have. uh, They've been enjoying the podcast so far. So thank you for all of your support and for tuning in and listening to this kind of crazy adventure in the ancient world. Today, I want to talk to you about uh, the ancient Israelite religion. I think in the kind of chronology that we're working towards, I think this is really well understood by first setting up the Neo-Assyrians and the Egyptians. So we talked uh, over the past couple episodes about those two empires. And it is really within that context, this context of kind of Egypt in the south, uh, the Assyrians uh, to the east, and kind of the Hittites up a little bit north. Not as important, but also still very much present as well as the sea people, these kind of marauders that appeared in the Iron Age, that kind of were part of the transformation of warfare and the experiences of empire. Uh, we, for example, talked about Ramesses II and his kind of encounter with them, these, these horned, uh, helmed individuals who raided these empires, as well as the rise of this kind of clash of empires between the Assyrians and the Egyptians. This clash of empires sets the stage for early Israelite religion. Now, we know that the Israelites existed. We don't know, however, where exactly they came from. So we have a sort of time period, a time period that shows up in the Hebrew Bible. Now, a quick word here. The Hebrew Bible is written by multiple authors at different points in ancient history, and it's always written much later than the events take place. That's just, you know, part of uh, the Hebrew Bible, that they are not writing about contemporary events. So they're not, even though we treat them as primary sources, and they are primary sources, they are primary sources that are still written after the events. So they're not uh, a sort of contemporary memorialization of events. They're instead a narrative or a series of laws or a book of rituals or a book of psalms, a series of books that are written sort of afterwards, but they act as really important testimony for the history. And that it produces sort of narrative history that can be used very well uh, in, in kind of detailing this history. And then trying to understand and situate the ancient Israelite people within the context of ancient history. Okay, so it, it is a very useful tool. However, this podcast is not a history of the Bible, so we're not going to talk a lot about the kind of documentary hypothesis behind them, the rise, the rise of kind of Deuteronomist and kind of where uh, these different uh, you know threads of the the Hebrew Bible were brought together. So I'm going to spend less time on the Hebrew Bible itself or the history of it. 
but we will draw from the Hebrew Bible as evidence for some of the things that I'm going to say. And I do so, again, with that asterisk of understanding that the Hebrew Bible was written by multiple, multiple authors. And so they will have different points of view, and those different points of view are important for us as uh, historians. Just to kind of establish a bit, little bit of a timeline, so we have a, this kind of early period that we'd probably refer to as the period of Judges, and that's how it's seen in the Bible, and it's from, from about 1200 to 1020 uh, BCE. And then we have the rise of sort of uh, the early Israelite monarchy, and that's about from about 1020 to 586. In fact, I think it's in 1000 BCE, we could say, okay, around that time, roughly, we believe, King David conquers Jerusalem, and he makes it his capital. And from then on, about uh, 1020 to about 922 BCE, is probably the uh, unification of the kingdom. Okay, so that's, you know, the earliest timeline that we're working with here. And this is rough. We don't have a lot of corroborating evidence that helps us to date all of this. So we place this within this timeline, but also with the understanding of, like most things in ancient history, it's a lot of it's up for debate. That said, you know, for people who kind of go, oh, well, you can't trust the Bible or whatnot, there's actually a significant portion of the Bible is corroborated by archaeology. Some of it isn't, and some of it, you know, Jonah and the whale, for example, right? And some of it, you know, there's mythic history in there, there's, um, you know, ritual history in there. There's a lot of it that may not directly be corroborated by history, but most of it actually is. The Bible is more accurate than people might think. Um, and we find, for example, you know, the idea that the ancient Israelite people weren't just made up. They existed. They were part of this context of the ancient Near East. So the Merneptah Stele is an ancient Egyptian stele. References in, in 12, uh, 1207 BCE in Israelite people. So there is, a, there is evidence from outside that there were that they existed, even the Assyrians, right? Shalamanasser III talks about Jehu, the, the king of the Israelites, coming and prostrating before himself. So there is, there is a clear outside corroborating evidence for the existence of the people. We don't, however, know where the people come from. The narrative in the Bible is that they were uh, taken into captivity or they were they were uh, enslaved in Egypt. They emerge and they're liberated from Egypt by this figure named Moses. And Moses brings them into the Levant, Canaan, and they establish a kingdom once they defeat the indigenous people who live there and the, these, these group of seed people, the Philistines, you know, and the Philistines are likely the de descendants of those sea people that had kind of arrived in the Levant. So well, that puts us within this context. They are obviously of the ancient Near East. More than likely, however, they, you know, whether the, the uh, kind of liberation from Egypt happened or not is less interesting to me. Um, but I do believe, I think, the evidence points that they were probably already indigenous to Canaan, that they were a Canaanite people themselves, that the Israelites were one of the kind of Canaanite nations or or kingdoms that emerged and probably became the most dominant through a series of wars and therefore wrote their history in, in the way that they did. Um, the evidence there, I think, also tells us a little bit about... Um, 
you know, even when we look at the kind of names of the deities that are used, earlier uh, references in the Bible refer to El and El Shaddai, the living one or the ever-living one. Um, and this is a Canaanite deity, right? We see with Abraham referencing a sort of El. Um, and then later on, we start to see, the, uh, you know, Adonai, and we see Yahweh, or at least what becomes known as, as Yahweh. Yahweh is an unpronounced, technically an unpronounceable name, but that seems to emerge later. Um, and that probably, you know, that takes a bit of time and, and the kind of the conception of the deity is transformed. Well, that's what I want to kind of focus on is the transformation of the religion and the transformation of the deity within this historical context. But just to set up the, the kind of stage, we recognize that first and foremost, they're likely an ancient Near East context likely Canaanite in origin. Um, there is a theory put forth, I, I think, by some uh, revisionist historians, very kind of interesting theory and very exciting. I, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence, in my opinion, for it, but it does provide one particular narrative in that it perhaps um, the ancient Israelite people that were led by this character named Moses, that Moses was maybe a high priest of Akhenaten, and Akhenaten is an ancient Egyptian king and pharaoh who introduces monotheism, probably the first example of monotheism in world history. And he kind of eliminates all the other Egyptian deities and instead worships the sun disk Atum as the one and so only god of the world. Um, and it's believed that, you know, once uh, Akhenaten is, is kind of a uh, he dies and his son comes into power, um, Tutankhamun. Uh, they restore the ancient Egyptian religion. There's kind of a big deal is made by later ancient Egyptians of seeing kind of Akhenaten as a little bit of a heretic. And it's perhaps during this kind of restoration and the driving out of Akhenaten's pro uh, program and, and, and traditions that uh, this high priest fled from Egypt and brought the mission of monotheism to the ancient Israelite people. That's one hypothesis. I'm not sure. I mean, it's in, there's it's interesting. And and it's certainly possible, um, but I think that treating a kind of monotheism as a foreign thing that came then to the Israelites and they adopted it from the Egyptian, I'm not sure that bears out in the kind of biblical references or bears out really in the kind of experience of the Israelites. Instead, what we see is that the Israelites are very much part of an ancient Near Eastern tradition. So first, we have, for example, in in the Bible itself, uh, that uh, Jephthah uh, references, he's one of the judges who's ruling over ancient Israel, but he uh, references the king of the Ammonites. He goes, should you not possess that what your God Shamash gives you to possess, and should not we be ones to possess everything that the Lord our God has conquered for our benefit, Judges 11.24. So what this tells us, first and foremost, is that the Bible itself recognizes that ancient Near Eastern context. It makes reference to other gods here, Shamash. We know Shamash is. We talked about Shamash when we talked about the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, uh, the Assyrians, right? He's the god of justice and the sun. So here the Bible is very very aware of other deities and also about conquest. He goes, look, Shamash gave you conquest, our god 
that gave us conquest. So again, this puts it within this context. You got Egypt on one side, the Assyrians on the other. Then you have uh, King David's uh, prayer in Second Samuel seven twenty three. Who is like your people, like Israel? Is there another nation on earth whose God went to redeem it as a people by driving out before his people nations and their gods? Okay, so this is the kind of narrative of, okay, we conquered Canaan. This indicates, at least to my interpretation as a historian, that the ancient Israelites were probably a Canaanite people caught between this kind of crossroads and clash of empires, the collision of the Assyrians or the, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians. And within that context, they established a kingdom for themselves, that they likely were a set of loose tribes with some unified cosmology or some related cosmology in some way perhaps related to the Greeks. We see often talk about the Greeks as a country, whereas in reality there's kind of a collection of city-states. So probably like the ancient Greeks, like the ancient Mesopotamians, they were probably a series of small tribes or city-states that had established themselves in the Levant, um, probably as a result of the sea and the Jordan River, um, and they had uh, uh, kind of a, a collection or if you would say a related pantheon or a related uh, cosmology in which there was a supreme deity El, but also a notion that other gods existed. Maybe not gods that they themselves, however, worship. So in this case, it's probably likely that the ancient Israelite religion was a form of henotheism, which is to say that they had a tribal deity, a national deity that they viewed as their guy the cool dude that was on their side. and But they also knew that other gods existed. I mean, here, they don't doubt the existence of Shamash. They don't go, oh, what your false god Shamash has given you, the fake deity, you know, the fake news that is Shamash. No, that's not what they say. Or it goes, oh, you know, our god drove out uh, the other people and their gods. So there's, a, there's clearly an indication of supremacy, that our god is better, but other gods existed. This seems to be what the evidence is pointing to. In this way, we can see that monotheism is probably an evolution, that it evolves through the experience of the ancient Israelite people, but that early on, um, it was henotheism, that it was a, f a broader practice of uh, ancient, and this in many ways is, is more reflective of the ancient Near East. We might say pagan or polytheistic, but in reality, uh, the ancient Near East probably was more henotheistic in that you'd have a, a kind of tribal deity, a national deity or a god that was unique to your city. We see all this with Nineveh and Ur, for example. And then other an acknowledgement that other deities might have existed. They might have even been part of the pantheon. So it's probably that we see that the ancient Israelite people, El, was one deity amongst many, or at least the chief deity of one tribe or one city. And that as, he, as the kind of kingdom grows and the monarchy grows, that monotheism emerges from it, that El begins to take on the qualities even of other gods. For example, we start with El and we end with Adonai Tzaboeth, the Lord of Hosts. Well, Tzaboeth is the title of actually another god, Baal, Baal Tzaboeth, who's a storm, Canaanite storm deity. So perhaps within this context of conflict of a tribe, an Israelite tribe that is then exerting its authority over other Canaanite kingdoms, 
kingdoms. As the Canaanite kingdoms are being defeated, and as the monarchy is starting to emerge within this kind of uh, period from about 1200 to 1020, that then the tribal deity takes on the qualities of the conquered deities. El, as Balthazaboth is defeated, takes on his qualities, and so on and so forth. We uh, have kind of physical evidence that this is also possible and likely. First and foremost, ancient Israelite religion is temple religion. So, for example, 1 Kings uh, 8, 10 to 13. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Well, what is this notion of a kind of a holy place in which God dwells? That's the temple religion of Mesopotamia and the temple religion of ancient Egypt. In this way, the ancient Israelite religion isn't different from those two religions in any way, shape, or form. Uh, indeed, both of them believe that the God, these kind of uh, transcendent deities, existed in an imminent form within the temple. And that in order to maintain the presence of that God, to cultivate the goodness of that God, you would carry out rituals before them. So this holy of holies would be given sacrifice. In this instance, burnt offerings. Blood sacrifice placed onto toll altars, burnt, and the smoke would then ensure the presence, the Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Shekinah of God, the presence of God, what we call the whole, what becomes known as the Holy Spirit or the glory of God, the Shekinah of God would be maintained within the temple through sacrifice. In other words, the kind of temple religion practice of the ancient Israelites is mirrors itself from the ancient Egyptians and from the Mesopotamians. It's a sort of creation ritual. You maintain the presence of God, the kind of balance between order and destruction. And the balance between order and destruction, the city and the wilderness, is reflected even in the ritual of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.8. And Aaron cast lots upon the two goats, one for the lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. So what we have here is a particular practice in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in which you had two goats, one of which would be sacrificed to the Lord, who was uh, who through that burnt offering would uh, you would cultivate the goodness, the power, the fruits, the abundance, the shekinah of the of the deity, and the other all the sins and the negativity and badness and evil would be placed onto that goat and trans through an act of transference. You would place your hands onto the goat and the, the goat would accept it, and then the goat would be driven out into the wilderness where Azazel would. Uh, uh, receive the sacrifice. Now, Azazel, we're not clear who it is. Uh, Azazel is believed to be a sort of angel of the Lord. There's some theories about this being the angel that went before the Israelite people during the uh, during their escape from Egypt, and it was kind of the fiery cloud that they followed. Others in the Book of Enoch indicate uh, that the Azazel was a fallen angel. So here you have sacrifice for God and yet another uh, supernatural force. So again, not strict monotheism in the way that we might imagine it today. Day. more much more henotheistic here is a another supernatural force either an angel of the lord or a fallen angel or a sort of a, a force of chaos that's also receiving a sacrifice right henotheistic but the practice of of, of kind of cultivating the the order within
within the city, within the temple, and then using sort of warding techniques or apotropaic methods to ward off the chaos of the wilderness. That's ancient Egyptian religion. That's uh, Horus and Set. That's Ra and Apophis. That's Mesopotamian religion. That's Marduk and Tiamat. Right? That's Shamash and Pazuzu. That's the balance between order in the city and the temple and chaos in the wilderness, and you keep the chaos at bay. It's a reflection of, say, the ancient Israelite experience with these raiders, the Philistines and the sea people, and these empires, because what comes out of the wilderness? The Assyrians come out of the wilderness. The Egyptians come out of the wilderness. The darkness, all the kind of bad things come out of the wilderness. So it is a reflection of that historical moment. This act, this act of atonement in giving a goat for Azazel, uh, is where we get the concept of a, of a scapegoat, right? Originally, likely even the word escapegoat was where we get es scapegoat. This is a Greek practice found in Syria. In the Syrian tradition, uh, it was done for the celebration of the wedding of the king, one for the, your deity and one for uh, another spiritual force. And in the uh, Greek tradition, you have the pharmacos, right? The, the, an individual from the kind of lower classes, um, a criminal or a slave, would be deemed as a pharmacos and be made a sacrifice you know, a scapegoat. Um, this, you know, it carries on sort of a, to some degree in uh, the Roman tradition as well, or the homo sacher, uh, right? The individual who's deemed homo sacher, both as sacrifice and as outside the order of Roman law. So in other words, that this practice of, of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16.8 is found more broadly as a Mediterranean Levantine Near Eastern practice. It reflects the logic of ancient henotheistic temple religion, of, of uh, a people who lived in a city but knew what came out of the wilderness. For the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, it was about the natural world. Wilderness brought with it the dangerous winds and brought with it diseases and brought with it, uh, you know, the dangers of the, of, of the Tigris and the Euphrates overflooding, going too far. Um, whereas for the ancient Israelite people, the wilderness represented uh, foreign forces, those people that are outside the tribe, outside your people. And that's what we're going to focus on right now, how this idea of one people uh, came about. What I believe is happening, using the kind of evidence here, is that the as the monarchy is growing, more and more identity is being wrapped up in loyalty to the monarchy and loyalty to God. Temple religion exerts itself as the primary experience of religion, but not just any temple religion. You don't go elsewhere, you go to Jerusalem. So the temple, Beit El, the house of the Lord, becomes singularly more important. Why? Because it's also the seat of the monarchy. That is where the Davidian monarchy is. So in other words, the relationship between God and the king, between Jerusalem as the seat of both the king and God becomes the kind of central uh, ideological pin that turns, if you will, henotheism into monotheism over a series of years, not over, you know, out of nowhere. 
as we start to see a sort of centralization happen. So first we see, for example, in 2 Kings 18.4, a series of reforms done by the king. Hezekiah, who's seen as a noble king, he removed the high places, broke down the pillars, and cut down the sacred pole. So here we have first evidence that these practices were widespread, that there are other maybe high places, other holy places that exist beyond Jerusalem. And that there were uh, pillars. These pillars were probably uh, associated with Asherah, who was originally the wife of El. So God had a wife in ancient Israelite religion. There's a whole kind of beautiful scholarship done on Asherah and her relationship to El um, and her you know, relationship with fertility and the cult of prostitutes and all sorts going on. But we see a series of reformations going on that, that targets these broader practices. Now, the Bible refers to these reforms in good terms. Like These are good things. Hezekiah does this. He's a good king. And views these practices as bad, as, oh, these were taking us away from God. But that's a later interpretation by a monotheist. In other words, the sort of Deuteronomist who's writing these parts of the narrative already has an ideology or is either uh, already part of the kind of monotheism that emerges um, or is trying to uh, you know, or is at least trying to uh, put forth the case for it. So we're not sure when it's written, but at the very least, we know there's a clear bias, and that is a bias towards monotheism. This Deuteronomist author, however, so rewrites what was normative practices. In other words, the ancient Israel religion included high places and pillars and sacred poles. That was part of their tradition. And the reforms that try to centralize, by centralizing the religion, therefore centralizing the authority of the king, are viewed with kind of uh, hindsight as good actions. Oh, well, that, you know, that was us, you know, accepting the one true God. So this is why it's important to recognize that the Bible has a lot of evidence, uh, even if it has a certain perspective, a perspective from uh, Deuteronomy. In other words, you, what we start to see is this process, a process in which monotheism uh, really emerges as part of a monarchy consolidation, a consolidation by a king. You have temple religion, you have broader practices, but as the king centralizes power, he, through his reformations and through his actions, says there is one king, one people, one temple, one God. This process is seen, uh, you know, in Second Kings 23, 2 to 22nd or 22. Uh, the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him went all the people of Judah. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king commanded to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for the all the host of heaven. He broke down the houses of the male prostitutes. He slaughtered on the altars the, all the priests of the high places who were there. The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as prescribed in this book. No such Passover had been kept since the day of the judges. So we see, here we go. There is a, uh, a temple in Jerusalem, holiest of holies, we associated with the temple of God. The Solomon's temple is the temple of God. But here, what does it tell us? There were other gods. The vessels of Baal, the vessels of Asherah, the vessels of other deities. And that there were priests to those deities. And they were seen as part of the host of heavens. 
And it is the king who Hezekiah who consolidates this, who says, no, eliminate all these other aspects. One temple, one God. So there's a purification process that happens. And it's done so through this thing, this book that's found. What is this this book? In Second Kings 22, 8 and also 11 through 13, the high priest Hilkiah said, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, an act of a, a mournment uh, or mourning. Our ancestors did not obey the words of this book. In other words, what we start to see is a sort of textual tradition. We don't know when the Bible was exactly written. We do know that most of it was written uh, in Mesopotamia. Most of it was written in the Near East, the connections with the Persian world, with the uh, Babel, with Babylon and whatnot. Um, we see very clearly uh, that there is, uh, you know, some writing down that's happening. But now you have this notion of a book of the law that kind of comes out of nowhere. Why? Why is this happening? Well, a part of it is because of the threat of Assyria. The, the Bible very consciously, as it's talking about Hezekiah, as it's talking about the uh, m you know monarchs who are doing good, Hezekiah, who's this great reformer, uh, you know the, the finding of the book by Hilkiah, the high priest. It's also talking about the fact that the Assyrians are conquering people. The Babylonians are uh, conquering people. In, for example, in 2 Kings 1833 uh, uh, and in 1912, has any god of the nations ever delivered its land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my predecessors destroyed? So there's an awareness. There is a threat, an imperial threat. They're caught between this collision of empires. In other words, monotheism may perhaps have been a survival practice. It started as a... Uh, a consolidation, putting everything within the authority of the temple, the authority of Jerusalem, and the authority of the king. But as you start to introduce the element of the book of the law, you then start to create the mechanisms for how your religion can survive if the temple is destroyed. In 2 Kings 19.15, uh, 19, uh, 15, and 17, we see, You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. The kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations of their lands, and have hurled their gods into the fire, though they were no gods, but the works of human hands, wood and stone. Here, you start to see the language of monotheism. The other gods don't just belong to other people. The other gods are made up. They are the works of human hands, wood and stone. Only our God is the one God. And he's not just the God of us. He's the God of the world. In that way, the Assyrians are nothing more than the agents of that God. This becomes the sort of religious logic to help to make legible the experience of conquest. That the conquest of the, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians of the ancient Israelite people is made legible through the experience of monotheism. By having a book of the law then, you are able to create a mobile temple of some sorts. You're able to keep your practices wherever you are, 
even if the temple no longer exists. This is why it was very clearly talks about keep the Passover to the Lord your God as prescribed in this book, 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings uh, 23, right? What, why is that? Why? Why is that this idea of keeping the Passover? Well, that means that you can do your practices, Passover being a ritual at home, you can do that at home. You can do that away from the temple. Now, that doesn't eliminate temple religion. We know, we'll talk about next week with the Persians in the coming of Cyrus, that they do rebuild the temple eventually. But it creates the mechanism by which your religion lives beyond the temple. So monotheism starts out as a sort of uh, political, perhaps, strategy of consolidation and then becomes a mechanism for survival. It is within this context of the Assyrians that monotheism emerges. And we see, for example, from 586 to 539, the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians come in, they first take the north, and they exile the people. We talked last week about how the Babylonian and the Assyrians, the Mesopotamian practice of empire, was to uh, resettle people, to take them and move them around. This way, they ensured that the people that they conquered could not rise up against. It would break the ties to the land, break kinship ties, break all the kind of things necessary for successful resistance. So for years, they're taken into exile. And it is in that exile that their identity is honed. Psalm 37, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. When we remembered Zion, how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Memory, in other words, and the writing down of that memory, become important constitutive elements of identity. We are one people, and that one people has to preserve their sense of self. Monotheism and the book of the law go hand in hand in helping to preserve that sense of self. We're not just one people with our, you know, another god amongst this pantheon that now lives in Babylon. No. We have one God, and our God is the true God, and even this experience is ordained by that God. He is the one who has sent to the Assyrians, and he is the one that has put us in Babylon. That said, this is also the era where some assimilation happens. The Babylonian exile transforms ancient Israel religion. Not only does it introduce monotheism, but it's likely where we start to see the Code of Hammurabi get adopted, right? The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the lex talionis, many of those practices and laws end up being codified in the Bible itself. So conquest is only one experience of encounter. It is only one experience of interaction. Assimilation and, and, and transmission or other experiences of uh, encounter between these empires. This is where I'm going to end it today. I hope that I was able to lay out the kind of history of monotheism a little bit here. We're going to develop this further, of course. We're going to revisit Israel religion as it goes from temple religion to rabbinic Judaism within the context of Hellenism and the Roman Empire, and that'll help us to understand the rise of Christianity. So we'll talk further about this, but I wanted to really kind of drive this point home that the ancient Israelite people, as little as we know about them, existed. They existed within this context of empires, of clash of empires. And within that context, they were just another 
uh, you know, religious Near Eastern tradition. But within that context, they also started to develop a system, a system of consolidation, that it was the experience of a monarchy establishing its supremacy, conquering other gods, taking on the attributes of those gods, maybe even taking on those gods, and then eventually purging all the deities for the favoring of one god, which became a way of legitimizing the king. One king, one god, one temple, one people. Where does it all happen? In Jerusalem, which happens to be the house of God and the palace of the king. So it all happens in Jerusalem, this act of consolidation. But that what starts off as a sort of monarchical strategy becomes the mechanism of survival. As the Assyrians are breathing down the neck, it becomes very clear. The reformation of Hezekiah, the reformation within the Bible that is all sort of retroactively seen as a good thing, is the act of eliminating these other deities, consolidating the one God, making that one God the creator of all, and therefore the very person who sends the Assyrians in the first place. If it's a henotheistic religion, then technically the conquest of the Assyrians means the defeat of El. The conquest of El, El is defeated by Shamash. But that's not what happens. Shamash is a false god. Marduk is a false god. El is the god of everyone. He becomes Yahweh. He is the creator deity. He's the god of everyone. And the Assyrians are nothing more than his agent. In other words, monotheism helps to make legible the experience of exile. And it also is not just to make legible, but becomes the strategy of preservation, of how Israelite identity preserves in exile. That's uh, the quick summary at the end. Hopefully this was an interesting podcast to you. I told you this was a kind of cool episode. One of my favorites is the history of monotheism. Whenever I teach this class, it blows students' minds. They really love this. I think it's a, a kind of fun history, but also a history that, that helps us see how religion, empire, power, and faith go hand in hand in this time period, and to some degrees even to this day. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can also catch on Stitcher Radio. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.